Father, we um, ask for your grace and mercy right now in this room. This world continues to remind us that we have no one beside you. Where can we go? You have the words of eternal life. There's nowhere else to go. So let us run to you now. Let us be totally ready to receive what you have for us, God. Wrap us up in your arms. Teach us. Shape us. Mold us. Transform us, Father. It's the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So this young lady named Sarah Harmeyer, um, she had a great job. She lives in Dallas area, and she was actually got this wonderful job of getting to uh, be the fundraiser for St. Jude Hospital. What a great job to do, just to get to raise money so that children who can't afford medical care get medical care. But her favorite part of her life, her whole life, had always been when she owned a restaurant that was actually centered out of her house. She loved the feeling that she got, that people got to come over to her backyard and into her home, and she ran a restaurant out of her house. She just loved the connection she got out of that. So she had this idea a couple years ago where she just wanted to recapture the the community she felt, the togetherness she felt when people from her neighborhood and her neighbors across the street and down the street and behind her street were coming over to eat in her restaurant. But instead of doing it restaurant style, she decided to ask her dad for a favor. She said, Dad, will you build me a giant, really big picnic table? And so her dad did. She, he built this big 20-seat picnic table, 10 seats on each side. And in Dallas, she decided to start doing a one-night-a-week event where she would invite, using social media, over 300 people a night to come and eat in her backyard at this big cedar table. Well, the first night, she sent out 300 invitations, and 90 people showed up, 90 people that she did not know, 90 people that were nothing like her, 90 people that didn't share much in common with her, and they sat down and experienced some togetherness. Something that was, she called, magical. Well, her idea took off, and now there's tables like that that other restauranteurs and other chefs have gotten a hold of, and there's tables like Sarah's in 50 different states, all 50 states now. And over 3,000 people, unique people, have gone over the last couple years to eat in the back of Sarah's house. Now, that may not seem significant to you, but When I heard this story, I was like, well, that's kind of a cool idea. But then when I heard her reasoning, it sounded so significant. Listen to what she says. She was being interviewed by the magazine Real Simple, and she said this. She said, 2,000 years ago, we as a people were invited to learn to love our neighbors. And that is what drives me. The world is crazy right now. This is back in 2018. She had no idea, right? (laughs) And we could use more love in our interactions. A lot of people need to feel included and seen, and it's hard. My neighbors are not at all like me, but there are ways that we can connect. And the table is beautiful. It's a natural place to do that. When you're sitting at a big table, you feel like you're part of something. Part of something. I think Sarah is on to something. We know as New Testament people, New Testament Christians, that a table does have power to bring people into community, into togetherness. I believe Jesus thought so, right? 
Some of his best ministry is at the table. He eats at the outcast, the sinner's table. He's with tax collectors. He's with a lady who pours a bottle of expensive perfume at his feet at a table. He shared his best and most intimate moments with his disciples. Where? At a table, washing their feet, sharing in the Holy Spirit, sharing in communion. And then, of course, we celebrate around the table each week. And Nathan just led us into that so well. We know this. The table holds power because the table has the power of togetherness. Together is a word and an idea that we're all running a deficit on the last 11 months, aren't we? It's a deficit that we all need to fill. And today, as we transition our series more and more, where we started the first four weeks with big principle ideas of how do we live like Jesus and talking about things like being with Jesus and becoming like Jesus and doing the things that Jesus did, we transitioned last week to answering the question, well, how? If I'm going to be like Jesus and become like, or be with Jesus and become like Jesus and do what Jesus did, I have probably got to grow. Amen, church? Yeah, amen for Jake, right? He probably needs to grow up a little bit. Amen for y'all? Amen. We all need to grow into this. So the how is how do we grow? And last week we talked about we grow through good teaching and good practice. And today we're going to take this a step further. It seems that everything in our world is changing at an incredible rate. But there are two things that we continue to lean into that will not change. One is that our desire is to be full followers of Jesus, disciples. And two, and this leads us where we're going today, is that as followers of Jesus, we cannot follow him alone. Together matters as Christians. Disciples require other disciples. I love how Mother Teresa described our world. She said this, loneliness is the leprosy of the modern world. And I think we know that she's right, don't we? Our youngest generation in the church, maybe not youngest anymore, but right there, there's almost a new generation being born now, but the youngest generation, Generation Z, who now is in their early 20s, 2021, um, is being described by social scientists as the most anxious and stressed out and most lonely generation in American history. They are separated, yet while they are more connected. They spend more online. They have more, probably, online friendships than anyone else. But in American history, they describe themselves as the loneliest and most anxious. Why? Well, I think we intuitively know. If anything, in the last six, seven, eight, nine years that we've learned about connectivity is that connectivity does not equal community. Right? We're more digitally connected than we ever have been, but yet we're more lonely than we've ever been. There's a strange thing. I can follow you on Instagram and know what you ate for dinner, but know nothing about you, right? I can know that you had fettuccine Alfredo and know nothing about your personality. Is that not weird? I can know what kind of dog food you feed your dog that you always take Snapchats about, and I, but I've never yet been in your own home. 
Now that is weird. Spend some time thinking about that, how weird that is. That we know the details in the intimate moments of each other's lives, like what you ate, but we don't have a clue of what it means to do life together. Sherry Turkle, who's been studying this kind of phenomenon in America for the last 30 years, has really ramped up her studies over the last 10, and she says this about our current age. Listen to these words. She says, we expect more as people from technology and less from each other. Digital connections and the sociable robot may offer the illusion of companionship and togetherness, but they offer it without the demands of actual friendship. Our networked lives allow us to hide from each other even as we are still tethered to each other. Now, I think we all know this. We live in a lonely world that's aching for something more. And true community, supportive and loving, encouraging and hopeful, seems to be more elusive in our world than it ever has been before. And the reason I even bring this up today is because when we look at the life of Jesus, he answers the question of what do we do about that. Because Jesus shows us in the way that he does things that community makes all the difference. Community and togetherness. Because the New Testament and the Bible shows us over and over where we're going to keep landing today is that together... If we're going to grow into disciples, together we grow. But people that try to do it alone, they fall. And so I want you to notice something as you go to Matthew chapter 10, 1 through 4. I want you to notice, we're going to look at this passage. This is a passage where Jesus names his disciples. But I want you to notice that Jesus did not call one disciple. In fact, he called thousands and had thousands of disciples. Then out of that crowd, he called a small group apostles. So Jesus had a crowd, then he had a community group, and then out of that 12, he had three that he's even closer to, Peter, James, and John. And then he had a crowd, he had a group, and then he had an accountability friendship or something. He operated out of community. But I want you to see some of the details of what we see in Matthew 10 and how Jesus calls an unlikely group of people and it should rattle us a little bit what he does and his idea of what community actually is. How different that it is from us. So Matthew 10, 1 through 4. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. He's, he's giving them his abilities to do what he's done to declare the kingdom. And then we get this descriptor from Matthew. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, we're going to lean into just a little bit of a detail here. Out of the 12 apostles, what's interesting is Matthew is we're told, he tells us about one guy and what he did, Judas. He's the one that betrayed him, or about what he's going to do. He gives you a little foreshadowing for what's coming later in the gospel. But out of the rest of the 11, only two of them remain with an actual description of who they were, what they did. That's interesting. 
That should get your, if, as a good Bible reader, and I hope y'all are, are becoming good Bible readers, that should get your attention. Why not, give it a, why not give a descriptor about Simon and Andrew and James and John and all those others? What they tell us about, though, is all Matthew tells us is, let me tell you about two guys, Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot. So we're going to look at why just for a second. Why does Matthew only include two descriptors of these two guys? Well, Matthew, you guys know. What's a tax collector? Why tell us about a tax collector? Why tell us about a zealot? Well, tax collector first. You guys know Matthew. We kind of know a little bit more about him. He's a tax collector. He's a Benedict Arnold, right? If that'll work for you. He's a traitor to the Jews. He has rejected his people for the wealth of Rome. He's rich. He's elite, he's educated, and he is connected to power. Okay, that's what it meant to be a tax collector. He is also, as a small descriptor of him, we can assume is despised by the people and especially probably despised by his own blood, his own family. For your son to be a Jewish person, to become a tax collector, would have been something you would not wish on your own children like when I decided to go into ministry, right? <laughs> you don't do those things. What are you talking about, right? But the other descriptor we get is Simon. And Simon is called a zealot. Now, we don't know anything else about Simon the zealot. This is really about all Matthew gives us about this guy. He's one of the 12 that we're like, you're going to see him in heaven, and you're going to be like, tell me, what, why, what did you do? Were you just an introvert with Jesus the whole time? He's going to be like, Peter just kept talking. We never had a moment, right? Right? There was that other Simon that wouldn't shut up, Simon Peter, right? Well, here's what we know about zealots, though. And this is where we get into the details. The zealots were a group of religious radicals. And they were part of this religious radical movement called the Sicarii. Now, the Sicarii, if you've seen the movie Sicario, it's the same word. It means assassin. There were a group of men that in Aramaic, if you were a Sakari, it meant brotherhood of the dagger. What a cool, like, get that on your leather jacket, you know, you got a hog to ride around. <laughs> I don't know. Something like that. This is a bad dude, right? The Sakari were, uh, were notorious for carrying daggers under their cloaks and walking up behind Roman soldiers and stabbing them in a crowd and then walking off. They believed that only one king should be over Israel, and that was God. And they were very zealous for that idea. In fact, they would murder for that idea. So you see, if you're following with me, why Matthew only gives us these two descriptions. The reason is, is that's because that's all he needs to say. He doesn't need to tell us about the fishermen or whoever else, whoever Thaddeus was and what he did. He only needs to tell you there is two polar opposite guys coming together in the 12 disciples. There's Matthew, the elite, who is sided with Rome, and there's Simon, who would like to get rid of all of Rome. These are polar opposites. And Jesus calls them into community. Two men who couldn't have been more unlike each other in worldview and belief and background and career and more. Two men so far apart in ideology, everybody else fits in between. In our day, if Jesus was walking here in America, it would be like he goes to California to call a Hollywood elitist 
that everybody goes, boo, we don't like Hollywood elite, right? And then he turns around in the next breath and runs to Texas and says, follow me, Texas secessionist, you know? <laughs> that would be the same idea, right? People so far apart in worldview and in thinking. Now this is powerful because Jesus here is calling people that have nothing alike into a fellowship of differences, into a community. And this is not by accident. This is what Jesus chose. So there is something to lean into because what it does is it begins to teach us about the church and about what it means to be in community with each other. See, we often think that the, the, the disciples or the apostles were just a merry band of guys that got along all the time. And that's just not true. We'll, we'll go to one right here. They didn't get along all the time. Matthew 20, 20 through 24. Look at this occasion here near the end of Jesus' ministry. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons, that's James and John's mom, came to Jesus with her sons, kneeling down and asked a favor for him. Will you please put my boys in to play the game, coach, is what she said. <laughs> they work harder, all right? What is it you want, Jesus asked. And she said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other on your left in your kingdom. This is a power move. This is a very bold move by James and John's mom. Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink from the cup I'm going to drink? And they answered, we can. These are the boys say that. And then listen to this. Jesus said to them, you indeed will drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared by my Father. But I want you to notice this last line, verse 24. This merry band of people that we think they all got along. Listen to this. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Now, this isn't just a passing moment. James and John have gotten their mother somehow in on this, and they're looking for something. They're looking for power. Their belief right now is that Jesus is bringing a sword, and there's going to be a throne, and they want one of the thrones. They want a throne on the left and right. They don't see it through Jesus' eyes. They're looking for control. This is a dirty, messy political move. This is whispering in the foyer of church to try to get your way to an elder and try to get somebody on your side. And then the ten hear about it, and they become indignant. Now, indignant is a word that's lost in English. To indignant to us, it means, oh, man, somebody's upset or somebody's not too happy with me, right? We don't really get the meaning of that word. When we think of indignancy, we think, oh, I am mad at you, monotone, monotone, right? But indignant means this. In the Greek, it means a raging bull has steam coming out of his mouth. The same word for indignant in the Greek used here is the same word that other Greeks would talk about a raging bull. What has happened because of this political move is that this band of 12 men are now at each other's throat. There is rage happening. Does this sound familiar, church? This is a frustrating situation. But Jesus calls them. And it's interesting that Jesus calls people, and here's the why. Why would Jesus call people who hardly ever would see eye to eye? Simon and Matthew. 
who are going to position themselves for power, James and John, who are going to try to get their way, Peter. Why doesn't Jesus call people who are already conformed into community? Those who believe and act and respond all the same way, just like me and you would do. If I was calling 12 people, I'd go look for 12 Jake Perkinses and we'd get along great. And then I'd realize, no, we wouldn't because everybody would be trying to get their way because that's what Jake Perkins does, right? I'd be like, man, I hate myself, right? That's what we do. And you know that's the truth for you as well. But here's the why. Why does Jesus do that? Why does he call people into a fellowship of being different? Here's why. little Venn diagram for you. The reason is because discipleship happens in between the ideal of what we think church should be like and what church is actually like. See, we all have an ideal in our head that this is the way church should go. We should worship the way we worship. We should read the Bible the way I read the Bible. We should do these things. We should do it the way granddad taught me 35, 40 years ago and all those things. And then we think if everybody would just think like me, we'd have an ideal church. But that's not reality. Nor was it a reality for Jesus' 12 disciples. But the sweet spot happens in between. Between our ideal and what is actually reality. There's a sweet spot of transformation in there. When we are willing to get messy with each other, when we're willing to get vulnerable with each other, when our disagreements, hear me out here, when our disagreements don't make us an enemy, but make us more Christ-like. so funny that one of the first things churches usually do to each other, if you disagree with me on one thing, you're automatically my enemy. Where do we get that? That's not in the Bible. You disagree with me on the Bible, you're my enemy. It's not in the Bible. Where do you get that? Our disagreements in that sweet spot make us more Christ-like. That's Jesus' point. It's a sweet spot where we learn to mourn and rejoice and pray and struggle and fight and disagree and love. And we change. Because my goal is not you to get like to get you to look like me. My goal is to get you to help you and encourage you to look like Jesus. And your goal is the same. That's community. So let's get into this. Because together we do grow. And alone we fall. So let's make this practical. Three things that we want to unpack from this and see from Scripture. First of all, together we grow because community is non-optional for disciples of Jesus. This is a hard one, but please listen. You cannot follow Jesus alone, no matter how much America tells you you can. No matter how much Texas Panhandle culture tells you you can. We have to fight against that. We think it's possible, but it's not. Yes, Bible study and prayer on your own and being a disciplined Christian on your own is a good Christian experience and it leads you to transformation. But it cannot and will not be dismissed from walking in community with others. It cannot. Several years ago, the Barna Group asked uh, American Christians this question. Barna's the uh, America's largest and leading uh, kind of tracker of, of Christian trends and ideas. And they ask them, 
What is your preferred method of growth for American Christians? What's your preferred method of growth and transformation? And by far the biggest response, 38% of people put number one on my own, (laughs) which is hilarious because that is not possible. It is not possible, but that's what we think is possible. You know why it doesn't work that way? 1 John 4, 20 through 21. Whoever claims to love God, I love God on my own, yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother or sister. You hear that? In other words, what John is saying, the Apostle John, who spent time with Jesus and figured out, hey, why did he call Simon and why did he call Matthew, is because guess what? I can't love God unless I learn in community to love my brothers and sisters. And if I say I have a relationship with God and don't have other people I'm walking with, what's he call us? You're a liar. Not my words. Man, Jake, you're being mean. Nope, John's being mean today. Right? Since you're a liar. Ronald Rollheiser says it this way. I love this. From this passage, he writes this. He says, part of the very essence of Christianity is to be together in a concrete community with all the real human faults that are there and the tensions that this will bring us. Spirituality for a Christian can never be an individualistic quest. The pursuit of God outside community, family, and church. The God of the incarnation tells us that anyone who says that he or she loves an invisible God in heaven and is unwilling to deal with a visible neighbor on earth is a liar. Since no one can love God who who cannot be seen if he or she cannot love a neighbor who can be. In other words, community, walking together, is non-negotiable for Christians. And second, We grow together in community because community is the actual context of transformation. God calls we, not me. He's always done that. He calls a people. But together is where transformation actually happens. And we know this. When I am being active and expressing and growing in my faith with somebody else, with my wife, with my life group, with a rooted group, what happens? You know why people love rooted groups in this church so much? Is because what do we do? We experience walking with Jesus together. Rooted people, amen? Right? And as we continue to do those, I hope you'll be in one because you can't do it alone. But the reason that works is for two things. Two things, two E words. The longer you're in community... The reason it transforms you is, number one, is it exposes you. Man, I'm sure that our newest staff members, Lori and Darcy, when they first started working with me, were like, man, Jake's a good guy. But by the end of year one, they're like, Jake's kind of a jerk. (laughs) Why? Because over time, exposure happens. The more you're around somebody, the more your hidden parts became visible. The more you get exposed, the more you lay down your facade. Exposure. And I don't say that as a negative. The more I've 
got to know my wife over 20 years. I'm more in love with Allison today than I've ever been. Why? Because we're walking together with Christ. And she knows more about me than anybody else, even the embarrassing stuff. And she knows it. And that knowledge, that exposure, makes me more Christ-like. I am close to some men in this church that know my faults and my inside outs. And I'm uncomfortable with being raw before them because they make me more Christ-like. That's why you can't go to a life group once and say, well, that didn't work out for me. That wasn't all I thought, up, all I thought it was going to be. Yeah, of course it wasn't. Spend a year in a life group and see what happens. And then the second thing it does is we grow in community because the context of transformation because it's a place of encouragement. It's interesting to me that our deepest wounds come from relationships, right? You don't have to think about something that hurts you most. Usually when we think about something that hurt us most, we're thinking about someone that hurt us most. Divorce, infidelity, betrayal, lies, greed, death. I think it's interesting that our deepest wounds come from relationships, but it's also where our deepest healing comes from as well, right? Forgiveness, a kind word, encouragement, somebody saying, me too, I've been there. Brokenness is healed together in encouraging words. It's true. Listen to what Paul says. This passage wouldn't be in the New Testament if we weren't to do church together. He's talking to a Romans church for 11 chapters, and he says, oh, the depths and the riches of God's mercy, and then he kicks off the chapter with let's be transformed, and then he's going to show us how to be transformed by the time he gets to verse 9. This is lengthy, but please hear this, because this is what it means to be in relationship, in community with each other, learning to love each other no matter what, and then learning to encourage each other no matter what. Paul says this, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone uh, evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it's written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. And on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. And then he closes it with, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In other words, love each other sincerely. Be in community with each other. Together we grow, alone we fall. That's what Paul's saying. In other words, people who stay and fight for each other grow. People who go first grow. People who sit on the side of the church pool and say, I'm not ready to get in yet. I'm going to try it out. I'll dip my toe in it. 
You can't be static with God. You're either rising or you're, or you're not. You're either growing or you're not. People who sit on the sideline don't grow. So we grow in community because it is the context of transformation. And finally, together we grow because community is the byproduct of commitment. It's the byproduct of commitment. And this is where we're going to finish up today. From the words of Solomon from Ecclesiastes, here's what he says. He says, two people are better off than one. For they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Likewise, two people lying close together can keep each other warm. But how can one be warm alone? And listen to this, because here's where we're going to sit, really, is on this part. A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better, for a triple-crated uh, cord is not easily broken. So here's what Solomon just said. I'm going to give you a little example of this. Chaz, come on up, man. Chaz's going to be my guy here. Give him a round of applause as he comes up here. Woo, Chaz, all right. All right. Here's what he said. He just said that as brothers in community with each other, what? It's better that we learn not to always just be eye to eye. We'll say more about that here in a second. That, but we learn that we're back to back. Why? Because the enemy knows my blind sides, right? The enemy knows my strongholds. And so when I'm back to back, I can fight the enemy. And Chaz can fight for me because he's bigger than me and he has a beard and he's a lot taller than me and he can, he can really get after it. He's probably a little worried about himself right now, but I can kinda, I'm, I'm scrappy, right? But we can stand back to back. So no matter what comes, if I'm turning this way and Chaz is with me, right, then we're turning. Whatever comes our way, we're in community with each other because we're back to back. He has my back, literally, spiritually, physically, we are in this together. Now, here's where we go wrong, Chaz. What we want often in church is conformity. We want eye to eye. Well, I can't even see eye to eye with Chaz. I see it right there, right? <laughs> All right, that's my eye to eye with you. Sorry, that was a little hard. Don't hit me. All right, what we want is eye to eye. I'll, I'll be in unity with somebody if they're just like me. That is not the biblical mandate. Biblical mandate is back to back with our hands up, looking for the enemy and saying, I've got you because we are in community together, loving each other, sincerely working to be more like Jesus. Y'all with me on that? All right. Thank you, Chaz. Y'all, you can have a seat, man. That is what it's all about. Now, that illustration, I hope, gets to your heart today. Because when we talk about community, it's easy for us to go, yeah, Jake, I know we're supposed to do things together. And what we often do is we have a bunch of people that say, yeah, I'll get to back to back. You go first. Right? I would love to be more vulnerable and open in my life group if somebody else would go first. Stop. How about we learn this? Honesty works. Love works. And because those two things work, it's not, hey, let's share, you go first. It's, hey, let's share, I'll go first. 
Well, I don't want people to know all my business. Why does sin have power over you still? I don't want people to know all the bad things I've done. Why is Jesus' cross not enough? If it has been crucified, why do we allow it to be crucified again and again and again? You with me, church? Some of you are frowning at me. <laughs> That's good news, guys. You ought to be smiling about that. In Christ, I have nothing to hide because Jesus has got my sin and my Christian family's got my back. Right? That's how we grow in community. We grow. Now, finally, wrap it up, Jake. You can keep going on this. I've got one more passage I just thought of, and I'm going to jump into it. Flip over. It's not on the screen. Acts chapter 2. If you guys want to turn there, you guys know this passage, and I'll finish. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. This is usually what we think of as our ideal and church. But the early church was not without problem. They weren't without diversity. They weren't without uh, their issues, but they were unified. And I want to close with showing you why they were unified. Once again, and reminding you why they were unified. Here's a descriptor, starting at verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayer. All came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds as, as all as anyone had need. Day by day they spent time together in the temple and in each other's homes. They broke bread and ate food with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And in this last line, and day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. This is so good. Or at least to me it is. We want to reach, we want to reach Canadian and the surrounding areas. Yeah, we probably need to get a little better at evangelism. We probably need to get better at, sh at sharing, our, sharing our faith. But you know what we really need to get better at? Community. Because the early church just did four things. Studied the apostles' teachings, which is a fancy way of saying Jesus. They studied Jesus, they broke bread and communion, they prayed, and they fellowshiped. And guess what happened? Guess what God was doing? He was adding to their number every day. Because they were living in community with each other. They were being transformed in that community, and they were being committed to each other. The byproduct of community. Right? That commitment was producing community among them. And God was doing amazing things. Growth happened because people were committed to Jesus. So you want a better church community? It ain't happening because certain people go here or don't go here. We get a new preacher. You may be thinking that. Good grief. If we get a new preacher, he wouldn't talk for 30 minutes. He'd already be done. Right? Growth isn't going to happen because of that. Growth isn't going to happen because we teach better Bible classes either. Growth is going to happen when we center around Jesus and we center around him, which has to do with good preaching, good Bible classes, and all those other things. But growth happens because we are centered in the life of Jesus together.
when you say today, I'll go first. Well, I wish somebody else would just encourage me at this church. No, I'll go first. I wish somebody would say something to me that would lift my spirits. No, I'll go first. I want that for everybody in here. I want everybody in here to experience true community, true connection with each other. But it's not going to happen because Jake said so. It's going to happen when we all commit to saying, I will do my part because I'm part of the community, right? Whatever you need today, that's what we offer. We offer community each week. Baptism is the entrance into that community. It is a start into that community to say, I'm in with Jesus. I want something better and new for my life. If you need prayers, if you need anything, please come forward and uh, join us as we stand and sing.